interim um, preacher in a church is figuring out what are we going to talk about? You know, what, what, and how long will this go, right? And I said last week that, you know, I'm here for the long haul as you go through the process of transitioning and, and, and casting vision and bringing in a new pastor and, and however long that takes. And so we're going to be doing a, a study. We're going to cover the book of Mark. And I love the book of Mark, and we're going to figure out why in a little bit. Um, uh, but one of the things about it that, that will happen is probably I will be here until the book of Mark is done in this, passage, in this teaching series, or if you find somebody sooner, then we won't get to the end, and you'll have to miss out on the final part of it. Uh, the book of Mark is a fascinating book, and, but we first have to grasp who is Mark. All right, so, so Mark, uh, the book of Mark is one of the, the first four books in the New Testament. It's one of what we call the Gospels, or actually foretellings of the same Gospel, if we want to understand that. Uh, Mark, we don't know exactly which Mark. Technically, it's an anonymous writing, but history and tradition says it was Mark, and Mark was a common name. Um, most scholars think it might have been John Mark, who was referenced in the book of Acts a few times as somebody who had been involved with Paul's ministry and then Peter's ministry. And uh, what the best guesses about who the Mark is and uh, was somebody who was a close, maybe a, a disciple of Peter. Right, somebody. Mark wasn't somebody who traveled with Jesus, but he was somebody who knew Peter. And Mark is really the recording of what Peter learned by being with Jesus and told to Mark. And Mark wrote them down. And he wrote them down to present to a very particular group of people. It was written probably in the 60s. Not the 1960s, but the aught 60s. O-O-60. And if you remember your history well, you'll, you'll know that in the Roman Empire, and this was probably written to the church in Rome, uh, which was made up of, of Gentile and Jewish followers of Christ, the, the 60s uh, were run by an emperor called Nero. Probably heard that word before. There's a, that old saying that says, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Uh, Nero had this incredibly vast responsibility. He was the emperor of all of the Roman Empire. Uh, He had a tremendous power, but what we remember most about Nero is that he was an an atrociously evil man. Nero would do things just to express his power. Nero would do things to to wreak havoc on the, 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 the kingdom that he was over just to show that he could. It was all a matter of if you oppress, it builds up your own power. And so he was always doing things to elevate himself. In fact, there's a story, that, that story about uh, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. There was this huge fire that covered huge amounts of Rome, and all of the evidence pointed to Nero doing it himself. He, he, he set the fires himself. That was what everybody seemed to know. But then what he did is he had to have a scapegoat, right? This is all about elevating your own self, elevating your own power, making yourself bigger in the minds of everyone. That's Nero. He's going to save us. He's going to provide for us. He's going to take care of us. And so he had to cast blame on someone else. And that someone else were Christians who lived in Rome. And in fact, some of the most hideous things you can possibly imagine are things that Nero did to the Christians in Rome. And remember, this is the audience that Mark is writing to in the 60s. The story about Jesus, he's writing to this church in Rome who is living under incredibly intense persecution by Nero. Things like people being skinned alive. Things like people being covered in oil and while they're alive and set on fire to serve as torches at some of Nero's parties. Things like wrapping people in animal skins and throwing them to the wild dogs and the wild beasts. 
individuals battling wild animals in the arena. And he did it because he could. So this is the audience Mark is writing to. And so we look at this book and we say he's writing to this, this group of people who are living under intense persecution simply because they followed Jesus. Someone who dared say he was the king of kings. And Nero just wreaked this havoc. And so we might say that the book of Mark is written words and spoken words. Mark probably also preached these things in and around Rome. To a people who were going through intense persecution, it was really a pastoral care, pastoral work to a people who were in stressful times, the likes of which we can't even comprehend. But it's also a book about great beginnings. In fact, the very start of the book talks about this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we're going to see throughout this book, and it's going to be a really fun journey, how God is the God of fresh starts, how he, he does things to start over, to make things new. And this story that Mark tells very succinctly is about new things, fresh ideas, a, a new way of understanding God, a new way of understanding what it means to follow, a new understanding of what the kingdom is. And he writes this to people living in the midst of hell itself. They've seen friends die. They've seen family members go. They could be next strictly by walking down the street. And so Mark is here to tell them there is something new. There is something fresh. God is at work. This is a great new beginning. And we know this is incredibly stressful in your time. We're going to jump right into the passage, right at the beginning of the book of Mark, starting at chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to jump in, and that's really the way Mark does it. What we're going to see throughout this book is that Mark just kind of goes bam, 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 from here to here to here to here, activity to activity, the journey of Jesus. What do we learn? It goes, 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 goes. And then it slows way down at the end as Jesus approaches the cross. He just jumps right in, and that's his way of writing. In fact, what's interesting, when he jumps right in, we're going to see that he gives us no background information at all. He just starts out with Jesus. And, and it's not like the other Gospels. I mean, the book of John, it starts out with, like, pre-existent, always eternal Jesus, who has always existed. He is the Word. He is the One from all time past. Or we see in Matthew and Luke, genealogies about where did Jesus come from? And we have the Christmas stories, and we have angels shouting, and we have shepherds, and we have wise men, and Mary and Joseph, and Jesus as a baby, and all this background information. And Mark doesn't give us any of that, and that frustrates us a little bit. He doesn't give us any background, and we're people who love information. I mean, I mean you go to dinner with somebody, or you're sitting around your house, and somebody says, hey, you know, they ask a question, everybody whips out their smartphone, right, so we can get the answer. You know, we, we have a bunch of birdhouses around our, our house on our property, and it's like, oh, what kind of bird is that? Let's find out. Oh, that's some kind of junco. That's a, you know, uh, brown, I don't remember the names of them anymore. But you know, it's, that's, a, that's a downy woodpecker. That's, you know, and so we have all these birds. We can look up information instantly and get an answer. But Mark doesn't give us any of that background information. He just jumps right in and says, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. 
And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey, and this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up from the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once, the Spirit sent him into the desert, and he was in the desert for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He, he was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. One of the things we need to remember as we read the passage today and as we do this whole study of Mark is that we're wanting to understand what the book was about, who it was written to. We want to, to the best of our ability, enter in and understand that world, and then we want to wrestle with what are the implications for us. That's always the way we approach things. So we've looked a little bit about who this audience is, who this church was in the 60s, so about 30 years after Jesus had, had, had been crucified and rose again and, and left the earth. So about 30 years later, and a church had formed because people had learned something about Jesus, right? They were being taught by people who had either walked with Jesus or, or seen Jesus or had learned from him. And, and so the churches grew and, and were developed in these communities. So this was 30 years after the fact. And what we have to understand and what we're reading, we get to understand things that Mark told that community that the people who were there walking with Jesus didn't know. Right, so it covers both things. Right, There are the things going on on the ground with Jesus as he walked and came on the scene. And then are the things we learn about that from Mark. Things that they wouldn't have known if they were right there at the time. Now right off the bat, there are some things that jump out as, to us that we just have to wrestle with. It says the beginning of the gospel. Gospel is a word that if you've been in church any time at all in your life, you've probably heard. And we talk about preaching the gospel. And for the most part, people seem to, and I'm going to use some interesting language here, limit the gospel to mean strictly one thing. They're talking about the gospel. If you preach the gospel, you're saying Jesus died for your sins and rose again. And if you ask for forgiveness, then you're a Christian. That's the gospel. I want to propose that the word gospel is a whole lot bigger than that. It includes that, but it's a lot bigger. In fact, this word gospel just in and of itself means good news. And you may have heard that too. The beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ. What we don't understand too often is that word gospel, that word meaning good news, was a very common term in that day. Usually used uh, to make announcements about a king or make announcements about a, a military hero coming back from war. You know, to, to state forth the exploits of the military, to, to talk about how they conquered and what they did, or to talk about the great things that the king did or the emperor did, or to announce the birth of the heir to the throne. And so you could see these pictures, these stories take place throughout the kingdom that Mark's audience would have been used to of a herald coming forth and saying, hear ye, hear ye, right? Announcing the presence or the, the birth of the new son of the ruler or announcing the exploits of the victorious battle of the general. 
Listen to the words of Nero. Nero would probably make a proclamation that he has put out the fires and he has caught the people who caused them. Right? Those would have been the gospel. And they would have heard these announcements. And so when this letter goes to this audience and they hear the beginning of the gospel, the good news, not about Nero, not about a military general, but about Jesus Christ, someone they know something about being just 30 years removed, but he's going to tell them something. And so this is this glorious statement about the good news, the gospel, an official announcement. The next word that jumps out clearly to me is the word Christ. This is the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, or probably more appropriate, Jesus the Christ, because we hear that word so often in our Christian circles about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Or if you go out in the world around us, you hear it said in a very different way. But we forget that Christ is a title. It's a Greek word that means the same thing as the Hebrew word Messiah, which really we talk about is God's anointed one. We're really saying this is the king. This is the one who will change everything. And we hear that word so often that I think sometimes we think that Christ is Jesus' last name. Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary Christ. It's Jesus the Christ. This is an amazing statement about who Jesus is. The beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, the son of God. And then Mark quotes the book of Isaiah about what's going to happen. So I said a bit ago that we need to understand that the word gospel means something a whole lot more. This is the good news. This is about the story of Jesus. When they hear the word Christ, when they hear the word Messiah, they're hearing the gospel, the good news, is the story of Jesus being the fulfillment of what God promised to Israel. The gospel is the story of Jesus, who he is, what he did, how he lived. And it includes going to the cross. It includes rising again. It includes life to come. All of that is the gospel. And so what we have to understand is to follow Christ is about to follow, the gospel is to follow Jesus and to understand that story of who he is and what he was about and what he fulfilled and what is to come. That's the gospel. And it's huge and it's glorious and it is good news. The title of the, of the, of the series is A Great Beginning. The title of today's passage is on your mark. And really, if we, we hear that in our mind, we're going to go, on your mark, get sad, go. That's really the way this book is, and it plays out that way all the time. Jesus is doing things, and he's teaching things, and he's showing people the way, and a new way of understanding who he is, a new way of understanding the kingdom of God that they've never thought of before. And he says, do you get it? On your mark, get sad. Go, and, and we see this all the time through the book of Mark, even in this passage when it talks, um, at once it says, after the baptism, he, the Spirit led him to the desert, that word at once, that word in, in Greek happens like 41 times in the book of Mark, which means immediately, without hesitation, they went, we changed scenes, we moved here, we went there. It, it happened over and over and over again. On your mark, ready, I just taught you, let's go. Let's move on to the next thing. Let's figure this out. I'm showing you the way. And what we get in this passage, when we look at it on the mark, get set, go, that the best way to finish well is to start well. And we live in a world that says it's all about how you finish, right? 
You got to finish well. And that's absolutely true. It's absolutely biblical. I mean, the Apostle Paul talks about, I run the race to finish, right? To win the prize. But we hope that on the day Jesus comes back, our prayers that he will say, good and well done, good and faithful servant. There's finishing well is an important thing. But the best way to finish well is to start well. Start down the right path. Start on the right thing. Go the right direction. Now, now I, uh, for a very short time in my life, maybe two years in, in junior high, middle school, I ran track. And in every race I ran, I ran all kinds of races. I went to a fairly small school compared to the other ones in the community. That meant you could do anything you wanted, right? <laughs> hey, I want to run track. I want to play football. I want to do it. Yeah, sure. We need, we need people. So I ran track. And uh, every single race I ever ran, I finished fourth. Now, that's mainly because, maybe it was an endurance issue, I don't know. I, I ran the 220 primarily, which back, that was the yards back then. Anybody remember those races? Now it's, you run 200 meters. That was the 220 dash. And, and I was uh, in junior high school, well, I'll put it this way. When I was 16 and got my first driver's license, it said I was 5 feet tall, 105 pounds. That's only because they don't measure you at the DMV. They just ask you, how tall are you? Oh, 5 feet tall. How much do I weigh? 105. I was really probably 4 foot 9 85 pounds, you know, and then we go back further into like eighth grade and seventh grade. I was just the littlest kid in school. They didn't have a wrestling class level for me. I was too light, right? So um, little, little tiny guy. What that meant was in a race, because I was really quick and actually pretty fast, I was at full speed in like five strides. Just pew. What that meant in these races, I was running full speed sprint as fast as my little legs would carry me and guarantee you I was in first place for the first 190 yards of every 220. And right before the finish line, it was fourth for me. As three guys went running by. Because they were at least twice as tall as I was. It took them a while to get up to full speed. But when they did, it was one stride for every two of mine. And so they were just faster and they finished better. Now, I think the problem was I was probably in the wrong race or I had an endurance issue, but, but I couldn't run any faster. But, but the deal was is that I started great. I, I just didn't finish first or second or third. And, and back then, we didn't have self-esteem ribbons, right? <laughs> the winners were first, second, and third. Nobody else got a ribbon. But you learned a lot and you developed character. Um, so starting well is only part of it. We do want to finish well. The goal is to finish well, but the best way to finish well is to start well. And so we have to understand, what does a great beginning look like? What does a great start look like? Well, first, a great beginning requires that we go the right way. And we get a few hints as to what that is in this passage. The book of Mark is going to flesh that out every week. What is that way that we are to follow? Uh, it's interesting, at the very beginning of this passage, we, we see the uh, prophet Isaiah says, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths from it. It's about what does that way look like? How does it play out? And, and we have to first understand what we can learn from this passage. And I think there are clues right away that says this way is different than anything this audience has ever thought of before. And we get that first clue by just looking at John, right? It says, John came baptizing in the desert region, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Everybody came out there to see him. It says he was wearing, you know, um, fur and, and eating locusts and wild honey. And 
If we were this audience Mark wrote to, we would get an image from what Mark just painted for us. We'd get an image that this is somebody kind of like Elijah, the great prophet of the Old Testament. And there was a belief in their, their lives that said, the promise of God is that one like Elijah, almost Elijah coming a second time, another Elijah is going to come, and what follows that new Elijah will be the Messiah. That is what they had been taught from the day they were very little. That was their hope. No matter what had happened to the nation of Israel over history, times of great success and times of great defeat, these people in the church living under persecution, their great hope had always been that one day the Messiah would come to make things right. One day a new king would come. God himself, in some of their traditions, would follow that Elijah character and change it all and elevate them back again to the promise God gave them to be the blessed nation. They were longing for that day. They lived for that day. And so when they saw this guy show up, who obviously by this little story was a very charismatic guy. He came from the desert. He came through the Jordan. He baptized people. He said, come all of you to be baptized. Come and repent. Come and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And it says droves went out. But this church in Rome would have known the story already. And they'd say, this is the way this is announced. But, but John died. Horrible things happened to John. They know the rest of the story that we'll get to in a few weeks. But, but, but he died, and he says, he was this, this Elijah character, and he says, someone more powerful than I is going to follow me. I, I'm not even fit to bend down and untie the laces on his sandals. But, but they know as well, 30 years after Jesus, that, that Jesus died. And they know he rose again, and that's why they, they're following him, but they still wrestle through it. So this is the one that was promised. We have this glorious language that starts this passage about what Isaiah says. This is the announcement. This is the good news. This is the proclamation. The good news about Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Prepare the way. Elijah's coming. What happens next is we get what we've always longed for. But, but both of those guys died, and look at us. We're living under incredible persecution. We've all lost family members and friends. We've seen horrific things happen to people we love just because they followed Jesus. What kind of way is that? And Mark is giving us hints right up front that the way of Jesus is something radically different than anything they ever thought of. And we're going to see over and over through this, this book that what Jesus is saying the kingdom is like, what Jesus is saying leadership is like, what Jesus is saying what it means to be a savior flips completely upside down anything they had ever known or thought of. We have to go the right way. And sometimes that way leads to the desert. We, we see that with Jesus. Which is, once again, very interesting. These four, first few verses just paint this glorious picture, right? This is the announcement. This is huge. This is like reading a great novel where they set the stage for the spectacular. And then it says, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. This, this glorious one the one who was promised, the one who is Jesus. This is the good news about 
the Christ, the Messiah, the King, the Son of God, and it just he just kind of slips in. Not unlike the beginning of the other Gospels where it talks about the birth, Christmas season, snuck in. Jesus was born in the middle of nowhere to a know-nothing family. Nobody really knew about it. The only big announcement was some angels to very few shepherds. Few people one by one found out about things, but it happened in the middle of nowhere. The God of the universe, the word became flesh, just kind of snuck in. And here it even goes so far as he says, at that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. And if you remember your other church history, Nazareth was a know-nothing name, a know-nothing town. Nothing good comes from Nazareth was a quote later. Nazareth isn't even mentioned in the Old Testament anywhere. So we have everybody coming from the city, everybody coming from the mountains, everybody coming from the towns, all the elites of the community who are looking for the Messiah, and they think John is about to announce that. They think he's the precursor of what is to come. This is an exciting time, and in the midst of this crowd, Jesus kind of comes and gets in line. This is the Christ? This doesn't make sense. We have to go the right way, and we also need to follow the right leader. And that leader is Jesus. He's the one who's going to show us that way. You see, John was not to be the long-time leader. John was a once-for-all-time, once-in-history figure who was the one who announced that Jesus is coming. But then he had to get out of the way. Why? So we could follow the right leader. Jesus snuck in, which is very different than the charismatic John. Jesus, John prepared the way, but now he has to get out of the way and as we said, sometimes that means following to the desert. So, so this story of Jesus' baptism here, as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son and my love, with you I am well pleased. And when we first read that, if we don't read it carefully, we're saying, well, that seems pretty extravagant. That seems pretty bold. There's an announcement that this is the Son of God? And the heavens were torn open? That seems like a pretty big public deal that everybody goes, this must be the one. But it, it doesn't say they all heard it. In fact, the language is very clear. It says, as Jesus was coming out, he saw heaven being torn open. In fact, that word for torn there literally means that. Like um, it, the word schizo, it's like what would happen with a lightning bolt unraveling something, right? Ripping it, not just cutting, which you could repair, but tore it open, meaning it's torn open, it's always going to be torn open which is really a statement that God has taken a different mode of access to the world. God is on the loose in ways you never thought possible. God is doing things. Mark is telling people that you're going to have to grasp over time as you come to know who Jesus is more and more. And then it says, And the Spirit descended on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son. Once again, that word there is just singular. It's Jesus. You are my son. This isn't later the transfiguration where the voice for everyone that was there could hear of, this is my son. This is, you are my son. In you, I am well pleased. The spirit descended, so he took him to the desert. Sent him to the desert. And, and, and to be honest with you, that, that's not how I tend to hope the Holy Spirit comes. 
I, I want and always long for the Holy Spirit that's the comforter, and he is. The Bible tells us that he is. He comes in those times to comfort. He's the one who comes alongside. I, I, I want that warm, fluffy Holy Spirit that says, there, there, this is all going to be okay. This is great. This isn't what happened here. This wasn't, and the Holy Spirit descended like a dove, and there was this sense of peace and tranquility. No, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. The descent was quiet, and he sent Jesus to the desert. It says where he was tempted for 40 days and dealt with the wild animals. Once again, Mark doesn't give us really many details. In fact, he's the only one that mentions, though, this idea of he was with the wild animals. And once again, if we remember who this audience was and what they were living through in persecution... Some of them had been put into the Colosseum to fight animals. They'd been wrapped in skin to be thrown to the dogs. There is comfort in knowing that Jesus was out in temptation and dealt with and defeated the wild animals. There's, there's some comfort there. And it was in the desert. And the people that this was written to would have had several images of the desert. One would be that the, the desert was seen as a place of desolation. It was seen as a place of hunger, a place of thirst, a place of longing. But they were also people that understood their history as the people of God. And the desert was also a place of new beginnings and fresh starts. The desert is when they were taken out of Egypt by God. They came to the desert, and that was the place where they were then going to go to the promised land. So that was a place of fresh start. So there was a place, a sense of hope, and they would talk about that. Part of their religious ceremonies were about that. What did God do in the desert? He provided and he prepared for us. It was a place of testing, but it was also the place that new things happened. Then we have the picture of the Jordan River here. John baptizing the Jordan. What was the Jordan? Jordan was that last place they had to cross to go from the desert to the promised land. So we have all these images and visions that would be going on in the minds of the people that Mark wrote to. He says you need to go the right way, but what we're going to learn over and over is that way is different than anything you've ever thought of before. You need to follow the right leader, and sometimes that means going to the desert. And we have to hold on to the idea that Jesus has to be out front in our lives. He has to be the one that we are following closely. When it says... Jesus came back for the desert. It just made this a sigh. After John was put in prison, literally that word means handed over. Once again, if you're the audience that knows something about what Jesus did, we know that he was handed over. And so we get this picture again. So John was handed over. We know Jesus was handed over later. It says Jesus went into Galilee. So all this glorious start, then the sneaking in, now he comes to speak. And people would have remembered they've heard from John the Baptist, who they think as this Elijah-like guy, who's come to prepare the way for the Messiah. The Messiah now speaks. He says, he's proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. If, if I were to go outside, go downtown, go on a bus, go anywhere and ask people, what do you think of when you hear the word Repent. What would people say? Because what we understand from this is that, that the way to follow Jesus is through repentance. That's really what we're getting to. The way to follow Jesus is through repentance is repent and believe the good news. 
It's all attached to something good and positive. But if you were to say, what does repentance mean? People say, eh, it's like judgment. That's like a street corner preacher with a sign that says, repent. The end is near. Repent. You're going to hell. And our response to that is, who are you to tell me what to do? You just say I should change my behavior because of the things you don't like. Well, a lot of it has to do with a very shallow, insufficient view of sin. Where we think of sin, because it's always played this way, is just, it's about behavior. And so people calling us to repent are saying, we need to change your behavior so God will love you. You've got to get things right. You've got to change all those bad things. It's more about behavior modification or sin management as opposed to really grasping that sin is something that this, this is an affront to God. This is something completely counter to who God is and who he wants us to be. We have a shallow view of sin. We also have a shallow view of repentance. Where we need to understand when Jesus says repent, and, and absolutely literally that word means to change direction. Whereas we're, we're heading one way. And Jesus says, if you were to follow me, if you were to go the right way and follow the right leader, if you were to understand the kingdom that is upside down from anything you've ever known before, you have to go the other way. You need to turn and leave that and go this way. In fact, we might say that uh, repentance is actually not about behavior as much as it's about a change of allegiance. It's a change of outlook. It's a change of expectations. It's a change of commitments. And repentance is the first step in faith. It's not the end result. I need to change my allegiances. They've been towards this. They need to be towards this. They need to be towards the ways of God. And at that point, the Holy Spirit starts working in our lives to deal with the stuff. It isn't get rid of all the stuff and do the old things you used to do wrong. Don't stop doing that so that God will love you. It's more a matter of change your allegiance. Commit to me. And I'm going to start working in your life on the other things. What is your allegiance? What are you about? What are you committed to? That's what the book of Mark is going to be about. What is this way of Jesus? What does it look like? Where should our allegiances be? What should our commitments be toward? What are we becoming? And how is Jesus at work to make that happen? I think it's going to be a fun ride. We're, we're going to learn things about Jesus that maybe we haven't really thought of before. We're going to see ways he's at work and how he wants to, us to engage our world in ways that are radical and, and turns the world upside down because the reality is, is that approach, following the right leader, going the right way, having Jesus be out front, repenting, turning towards new allegiances and commitments and expectations, that's how Jesus is changing the world. Through us, his, his body, one by one by one by one. It's a glorious story. It's the gospel, the story of Jesus, the fulfillment of what Israel hoped for and longed for. It's the story of his life and his actions and his demonstration as an example. It's his death on the cross for us. It's his resurrection. It's his Leaving, it's the Holy Spirit coming and interacting with us and guiding us, giving us power to live for Christ. And it's Jesus returning again for his people. All of that is 
the gospel. And Mark says this is good news. For you who are in a stressful, persecuted, troubled place, this is amazing news. Whatever you are going through, Jesus went through more. He went through more and he conquered death. There is hope for you in your circumstance. In the midst of being people who are repentant, which is, I think, an everyday thing, every day we can wake up and say, here's a way that my allegiances need to change towards the things of Jesus. The great promise from Scripture is that his mercies are new every morning. There's a fresh start every day. We want to head down the right path. We want the best start possible because we want to finish well. But all along the way, we're going to trip and fall. And Jesus is with us. The Holy Spirit is empowering us. And let's try that again. I'm with you. I love you. I paved the way for you. Now follow my way. And my way is not just possible. It's amazing.